I didn't have school shoes. I didn't have any of that stuff. And I walked in my mother's bedroom in the afternoon and thinking we were going to go school shopping that day. And she was kneeling by her bed praying. I grew up in a very Catholic family. There was, but for most of my early life, I actually thought I was going to join the convent. And boy, did that seem so safe to me. So my mother's kneeling by her bedside. She's praying and she's got the rosary in her hand. And I was so angry at her. And I said, how can you be praying to God? God took your son. God took my brother. How can you be pray. Like, aren't you angry? I'm mad. And my mother stood up and wrapped her arms around me and she said, well, we're, we're not supposed to understand the plan. We're supposed to pray for the faith to get through it. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. Today, we delve into the inspiring story of Dorothy Andreas, a remarkable entrepreneur with a profound journey of trials and tribulations, as we delve into hats one, three, four, and seven, the soul, the servant, the entrepreneur, and the seeker. Growing up, Dorothy faced a challenging childhood marked by neglect and invisibility. Despite these hardships, she demonstrated extraordinary resilience, launching her first business venture at 19 and overcoming her father's skepticism about her business acumen. Dorothy's life was a series of hardships, from personal losses like her brother's and father's deaths, to surviving an abusive relationship and navigating toxic, difficult business partnerships. Each challenge taught her vital lessons about resilience, self-worth, and the power of rewriting one's narrative. Today, after nine businesses under her belt, Dorothy focuses on mentoring entrepreneurs, specializing in money mindset and time management, and has authored several books, including Streamline Success. Her story is a testament to overcoming adversity and using personal experiences to empower others. So, if you're looking to overcome life's ups and downs and learn the meaning of the true essence of resilience, let's extend a warm welcome to Dorothy on The Seven Hats. Dorothy, welcome to The Seven Hats. Thank you, Yuval. It's really an honor and a pleasure to be here. Uh, listen, I got to say, today's episode, it's one for the books. You know, Dorothy, you're a woman whose story and mission touched my heart and gave me a fresh perspective on the power of community, passion, and sheer determination. But before we dive into your heartwarming story, the Seven Hatters always love to get the backstory behind what influenced your path. So, Dorothy, I always like to start off my interviews with where were you born and how was your childhood like? Uh, thank you, Yuval. I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was the youngest of four children and unplanned pregnancy that was never kept back from me that that I was that. So it was interesting growing up. 
I had a father who was uh, not home a lot, very, very busy, but not home a lot, and a mother who was a little bit suffering, but wonderful. And, you know, I, I just was very shy, very always afraid that I was making mistakes. But, you know, I was a good student in school. I made the honor roll. And, you know, I'd bring those report cards home and nobody would even look at them. So that was a little bit tough. Yeah. So I grew up in Pittsburgh. I went to a Votech school in high school, vocational technical, like a trade school for cosmetology while I was in high school. That was very exciting. It was kind of like an escape, Yuval. It was, it was a way out of some situations that I got really into the idea of hairdressing and the profession. I, I loved that I could create instant results. I could make money right away. Like I could cut my neighbor's hair on a bar stool in our garage and get paid $3. You know, this was the 70s. And I got a scholarship to go on and get my teaching license. So I did that for cosmetology. Then I started putting myself through college where I thought that I would get a degree to become a certified teacher, which, you know, at that time you got paid more money if you were in a public school system teaching than in a private school. So I was just looking wow. at, like, surviving, you know, surviving. So, yeah, I was working three jobs to put myself through college, and that was tough. Interesting background. So I, I speak with a lot of folks who had some trauma in, in their childhood, obviously either losing a parent or a parent like my that is an example, and mom, to some extent, who work a lot and were absent from a lot of the the day-to-day. -day. Tell us a little bit about what did your dad do? How was that interaction like with him? You were an unplanned child and was made aware of it. So what was the dynamic like? And was that dynamic what you were escaping from when you left for cosmetology school? Yeah, the dynamic was, I felt invisible, Yuval. And I think that's why I was shy and quiet. I didn't know how to be seen because everything I tried didn't work. It just didn't work. Good grades didn't work. Being a good little kid didn't work. You know, and then I had a, a brother who got sick and, and died and he had cancer. And watching my parents live through that, our whole family living through that, it was really awful. And, you know, I watched my parents suffer so much and that made me even want to shrink back more. I didn't want to be a burden. I didn't want to be somebody who would cause them more pain. Thankfully, I had a very good aunt and uncle who didn't have children, and I would spend a lot of time with them because it felt safe. It just felt safe. The, you know, the dynamic with my father was there was none. Wow. Yeah. And what was he doing? What was his profession? He worked for General Motors. He was in a management position with General Motors Corporation, and then he was became an elected official. He was a district justice, and he was always having affairs, you know, and as a little kid, you kind of, you know something's not right in the house, but you don't know what it is. And we'd see my mother crying and and then would hear them fighting. And my sister and I, she was a couple years older than me, we shared a bedroom. She would say, well, who are you going to live with? Because they're going to get divorced. And and I used to fall asleep terrified at night. Who am I going to live with? I, I want my father's love, but I know he doesn't take care of me. And I don't think my mother could take care of me. She doesn't have any money. She doesn't have a job, you know. But he was very busy outside of our house doing what he did. And, you know, as I went on to do the self-development work, it was generational. It was a generational pattern. His father did the same thing. My brother that lived did the same thing. And, and I love them dearly. It's just that's what they knew. 
I saw it within myself as well. You know, when stress happens, we revert to the lowest common denominator of our tribe. Yeah. And and it it's it was tough to put those pieces together. So your mom's suffering was it because of your dad, or did she have her own trauma that she was dealing with? I think it was because of my dad. You know, she was one of twelve children. They were depression. Oh, wow. Yeah, they were depression era parents. You know, we we grew up like you couldn't waste a square of a piece of toilet paper. Right? I remember this one time. Uh, this this sort of defines the, how we grew up. You know, my father had a good job, and and but we we weren't flush with cash. I, we qualified that I was on the school lunch program while my dad was driving a Cadillac. You know, so it was again trying to make sense of how this stuff happens, but. I went to make a ham sandwich one day, and I pulled the ham out of the, the refrigerator, and it had this green kind of moldy sheen on it. And I said, oh, Mom, you know, I'm, I'm going to throw this away. And she said, oh, we can't do that. She rinsed it off, patted it dry with a paper towel, and said, here, honey, make your sandwich. Oh, wow. And it, it and was you're still like alive, that. which is fantastic. <laughs> I mean, that's great. You know, but it, it's well. It just shows you how wasteful we we have all grown to become. But you know, uh, I I think that in some ways I was ever there was so much craziness going on. You know, when my brother was sick, my other brother was doing his own sort of crazy life, and my father was always coming and going. And I might have been like safe space for my mom, but it was like, oh, honey, here, let me like. I, a crutch. I felt yeah. like a crutch for my mom. And it was always around the sorrow with my father and being taken advantage of around money management. And and I really look back and see that so clearly now. And how about your siblings? Did they treat you like an equal or did they also get caught into the you're not wanted mentality that your parents put you through? Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of kids hear, oh, you're not one of us. You were adopted, especially yeah. for the younger sibling. But, like, I believed it. So my older sister and brother were very, I think I took time and attention away from them when I was born. Yeah. Very physically and emotionally abusive. And it, it took a lot of years to get over that. And I could see, and like, you know, how I recreated patterns, inviting that into my life, thinking, if I can just prove to myself that I'm good enough this will stop. This will stop from the earliest time that I can remember being two or three years old and being, you know, pushed and punched and hit and spit on by an older sister and brother that was, you know, like you, you grow up thinking that this is all I deserve. And that was tough. And have you reconciled? Are you speaking with any of them at this point or did you cut ties at some point? No, no, you know, and, and it's so crazy. Like, my husband, you know, we've been together for 12 years. He said to me a couple months after we met, why do you even talk to them? You know, I see what they do. And I was like, well, you know, I lost one brother. I, I only have two siblings left. I have to make it work. And he said, but you don't have to take the way they treat you. Now, I was 50 years old when that conversation happened. And and it was right around that time that I really, you know, I had been started doing the self-development work in my 20s, but there was this part of me that always knew our, how you got attention in my family was by making my older sister's life better. Mm. Like, she was truly the daughter they waited for for many years. So, I developed this 
belief system, you know, probably when I was seven years old, that if I work really good, if I if I go next door and help the neighbor with a task and I get paid a quarter, that quarter's for her, not for me. Because if I make her life happy, I get a pat on the head from my dad. And I remember at one point, at some point maybe in my 30s, thinking it would almost be easier to cut off my right arm than to be able to say, no, I can't pay your bills this month. I can't pay your bills this month. Because I couldn't say it. I just couldn't say it. I was so like, and this is, you know, I'm like a wholly sane person, but it's these internal fears that we all have. I remember actually thinking that. And for the rest of my life, I will remember the day I was 50 years old, sitting in a car dealership waiting for my car to be repaired. And my sister called me and said, hey, I need you to send me $1,200. And I had been paying bills for decades. And she was very capable of working, just not a good money manager, because she never had to be, right? Yeah. And, and again, this is no shade on my sister. We've, we've talked through this and come to terms. But I just said to her, you know what? You need to pay your bills yourself. Nice. You can't call me for money ever again. And I felt like I had a 5,000-pound weight lifted off of my chest. And then, <laughs> then I had to look back and go, well, what was I afraid of? I yeah. was afraid she wasn't going to love me. Hmm. You know, I was afraid she wasn't going to love me if I said no. Isn't it amazing how much we do, despite what's best for us, for admiration and for the love of others, and to think yes. that we're enough? Yeah. That's yep. amazing. It really is, you fall, you know, on the Enneagram, if you're familiar with the Enneagram testing, I'm, I'm a two, which is the helper, the giver. And I could see how that pattern was developed from the time of early childhood. Let me knock myself out to get things to give to you, to help you, whether it's time or money or gifts or praise or whatever. And let me just give, 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 so you love me. And... In that doing, you know, we never learn how to receive. That's, I think that's very common for entrepreneurs. You know, we start a company to give our skills to the world with our product or our service. Yep. We hire employees to really make their life better. And it can be so hard to, to actually receive for ourselves. That's, why I think, why we so often keep ourselves in a position of giving. giving. Yeah, I mean, like entrepreneurs, there's a lot on our shoulders, just like you had with your sister. I mean, you feel responsible for their livelihood. So, your dad's still alive? No, he, he died when I was 21. So, you know, I was started out with saying I was I was working these three jobs to put myself through college, and this was this was a pivotal point in me realizing I get to use my voice, whether it's inside of my head or outside of my head. I was working really hard, no financial support, no emotional support, and this hair salon came up for sale in my neighborhood. I went to meet with a woman, I'm 19 years old, and you know, negotiated to buy her business off of her. She wanted $5,000 for it. I had a friend that I knew was opening a salon across the street, and I shared that information, and I'm like, well, what if your business goes away over to my friend's salon? He's opening in a couple months. I won't have any business, so what am I, what am I really buying? So I negotiated and to get the signed the agreement for $4,000. This was October 1st of 1980. And she said, where are you coming up with this money? You know, are your parents helping you? And I said, no, I, I own my car. I've paid for it. I can sell my car and, and that's it. And I went home that day so proud of myself. You've always like, finally, my dad's going to be proud of me. I'm going to be a business owner. Now, you know, I had no idea that I didn't even know what that meant. And so I called my parents into the living room and I said, you know, I have such big news to share and dad, I need your help. I need you to help me sell my car like right away. 
And I know I could walk to and from this business until I could get another car, but, you know, can you help me sell my car? I'm going to buy this business. And he just put his hands in his pocket and he looked at me and said, you know, you're not smart enough to run a business. I don't, I don't want to be a part of watching you sell your car and lose this money and fail. It's going to go down the drain. It's going to go down the tubes. And in my mind, you know, I'm saying, F you. And I spent the next many, many years of my life proving him wrong or trying to prove him wrong at a huge expense to myself. Anytime something would go wrong. I mean, the first day I opened the business, I didn't even know I needed to have change in the cash drawer. Right? The first client went to check out and handed me a $20 bill. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't have change. And instantly it was like, my dad was right. I'm not smart enough. And I remember walking back over and there was another client sitting in the chair and thinking, I'm going to sink or I'm going to swim. And sinking is not an option because I cannot let my father see me fail. I cannot let his words come true. And it was tough. That first year, that was when the steel industry collapsed in Pittsburgh and my client base did end up going away. My friend went out of business in a couple of months and I went down to 97 pounds, you know, five feet eight. That's, that's pretty skinny. I just, I moved out of my parents' house into an apartment and I was just calculating every night, how many haircuts, how many clients do I have to do to pay the rent, to pay the bills? And there was like literally $7 a week on average left for me to buy food for myself. So, you know, being hungry makes you figure it out. And what happened to that business? So my father died when I was 21. He died while I had that business. But a couple years later, the building that it was in, there was an apartment next to my salon. And it was she was actually a friend of mine. We went to school together. She fell asleep with a cigarette in her hand, and the building caught on fire. She perished in the fire, and it was it was awful. I lost everything that I had. I had a small insurance policy. I didn't even understand about business insurance. And, you know, but the, the fire department called me at 7 o'clock in the morning, and uh, I used to go to morning mass every morning. I'd spent a lot of my life doing that. And I'm getting ready to walk out the door to go to, go to the morning mass with my mother, and I have jeans and a pajama shirt on and, and a jacket, and my pajama shirt's tucked in my jeans, you know, and the phone rings. And it's like, who's calling us at 10 to 7 in the morning? And it was the fire department. They said, I, the building's on fire. We need you to get up here with the key to your front door. We don't want to break in the glass, but we need to get in there. And so I was, as I was, you know, it was two or three minutes from my house, as I was driving down the hill, and I could see the fire trucks and the ambulance and the police cars, I saw them carrying a body bag out of Susan's apartment. And I just got sick to my stomach. She was the only person who lived in the building. And, and, and in that moment, I thought, whatever I've lost, I can get back. So, you know, I can't get Susan back. She can't come back. So I, I, I lost that business. I set up shop in, in our garage, my mother's garage. I was living at home with just my mother. This is when we used to have the thing called call forwarding. Fortunately, the day before... I forwarded the calls to my mother's house and took the appointment book home. So I had the, this is when we had paper appointment books. I had yeah. the appointment book and all phone calls that went to the salon were transferring into my mother's house. And this was a big story. It was on the news. I was being interviewed. So everybody knew. Wow. So I cut hair in the basement for a couple of weeks. And my friend who built the salon across the street, it was in the lobby of, of, an, of an apartment building. And he didn't succeed in business. The manager of that building called me and said, hey, we've got a salon set up here ready for you to move in. And I said, you know, I know it's a beautiful space. I've seen it. I just don't think I can pay the rent. 
And she said, what were you paying? And I was paying $235 a month rent. This was, you know, 43 years ago. But she said, we'll give it to you for the same, we'll give it to you for the same place. We don't want the empty space there. And it turned out to be wonderful. And, you know, I actually, a friend described it a couple months later. It was like watching a phoenix, the phoenix come up from the ashes. You lost everything, literally the ashes. And then a couple months later, you opened this other business. And I started bringing in new services and hiring more people. And I really, during that time, started understanding I need to put processes in place in this business. You know, during that time, I, I got married, my first marriage. I was pregnant, had my first child. And I wanted more. You know, when my baby was born, I remember holding him in my arms and thinking, I want more in my career than this nice little hair salon that now has a tanning bed and we do nails. <laughs> You know, yeah. I, I want more. And this child is fueling me to want to give him a better life. When your father passed, what was your relationship like with him? It, it was still pretty, it was still pretty tenuous. You've all, he developed prostate cancer. And, you know, of course, I always think about the physical ailments or manifestations of emotional upheaval and guilt. I think... After my brother died, my father had told my mother, we didn't know this for years, he told my mother, he thought the cancer was punishment for the way he had lived his life, and that losing my brother was punishment for the way he had lived his life. He had gotten somebody else pregnant during their marriage, and he didn't have anything to do with that child, and that child, a little boy, uh, died when he was very small. This was, you know, I wasn't aware of these facts until I was you know, later in life. But so he developed cancer and then he had a heart attack. And I was, you know, how that happened was crazy. I was at, I was at work. My mother called me and said, I was at the salon. She said, can, can you come home? I think your father has to go to the hospital and I'm afraid to drive him. And, I, you know, I had clients there. So I went to turn to my assistant. I was working with one assistant and one other hairdresser. And I said, I, I got to go. Can you take care of my clients? Just call everybody and cancel them. So I drive home, and my father's in the car having a heart attack. And we get to the hospital. He goes into intensive care, and it looks like he's going to be okay. So it was it was like his second or third night in intensive care. We were all in there, and he just didn't look good. you know. So my sister and her husband left, and my mother and I were there, and he said, you know, I, I want to say goodnight to your mother, so if you want to step outside. So I leaned down, and I kissed his cheek, and I said, you know, Dad, I love you. I can't wait to see you tomorrow. And he looked at me and said, you know, my nickname was was Dodie. He said, you know, Dodie, I'm glad you finally let your hair grow to look like your sister. Those are his final words to me. And wow. I walked out thinking, you know, tomorrow I'm just going to ask him to tell me that he loves me. You know, I'm just going to ask. I haven't thought about this for a long time. I'm just going to ask him to tell me that he loves me. And uh, so, you know, he said goodnight to my mother, and we went home. Dallas was on TV. We went home, and we're sitting there watching Dallas, you know. And the phone rang, and it was the hospital, and they said, you need, you need to come back in. Well, he had died. And so we came back in, and the social worker was there. And, and I just remember thinking, fuck. I, I can't ask him to tell me that he loves me. I can't ask him to tell me that, ever. And uh, that, was, that was really hard. That was really, that was a hard one. It took me a lot of, lot of years 
a lot of work to come to terms with what is this story doing to me in my life now. Wayne Dyer often said that a snake bite never kills you, but the venom that keeps running through your veins is ultimately what contributes to your demise. And I think the stories that we tell ourselves and that perpetual loop that it plays through the years is what ultimately is a downfall for many folks. And I know, and what, what I love about this story and, and you being vulnerable, thank you for that, is that I can guarantee you at this moment, there are plenty of folks that are listening to you that are going through the exact same emotional roller coaster that you went through. So it's helping. The question is, how did you deal with it over time? And did you? Have you dealt with it? Or do you, are you still under that trap? Uh, you know, I've, I've dealt with it hard, hard, intentionally hard. You know, I realized, so I, you know, I go on to have my first child and there was stress in my marriage. I felt we pick our wounds, right? We choose people to be in our lives from our wounds, I, I, I so believe. You know, so I picked a person who I was never going to come first with. I, I just wasn't going to come first. And of course, I didn't recognize that. I thought this is this is it. And, you know, the morning of, of my wedding, my brother walked into the house and said, well, this marriage isn't going to last. And, you know, I'm getting married like in an hour. And I said, well, how could you even say that to me? He said, oh, I just know. It's only a matter of time until you're cheating too. And I was thinking, that is the most horrible thing. I will prove you wrong. I will never do that. I would never do that. I would never deal with stress. Well, I didn't know I was stressed the way that, you know, it was just like, I wouldn't yeah. ever be so selfish as to do that. And, and sure enough, you know, 18 months later, I'm exhausted. I feel like I'm in it by myself. I truly felt like I was in it by myself. And, uh, and I said to my husband, you know, do you think we should get a marriage counselor? You know, my business was doing well. My business was growing. Like, that was my safe space. I could funnel all of everything into growing a good business, like providing great services, being a good employer, growing and building. And, you know, I had sold the, the business that I opened after the fire and opened another business and then expanded. So business was going really well. Still the hair salon, right? Still the hair point. salons and started to transition into day spas at that time. And I remember okay. 1986, the year that my son was born, I opened a, a new business, you know, called Clip Salon and Day Spa. And day spa wasn't a term that had hit America yet. So people used to walk in. It was, a, it was in a business district. People would look in the plate glass window and come in and say, hey, what's a day spa? <laughs> A lot of people said, you know, people didn't know what the word spa was in America yet. So I started realizing, you know, I've, I've got to educate the market on what the word spa, how it's pronounced and what it means. So, you know, that's where all of my joy was coming from, that and holding my baby in my arms. But, you know, the marriage started really being filled with stress. When I said to my husband, I think we need some marriage counseling. And he said, yeah, you know, I actually looked at an apartment. I was maybe thinking I would get an apartment closer to town where he worked. 
And it was that same thing in that moment. It was like, I will not let you hurt me. You know, unbeknownst to me, blindly making a decision. If I do something to feel love, you can't hurt me. And what was that something that I knew? Again, the lowest common denominator. Three weeks later, I'm having an affair. And, and I remember being so disgusted with myself when I first realized what I was doing. Like, I hate this part of myself. I can't believe I'm doing this. And all I wanted was to feel like somebody loved me. Somebody thought I was special. And then I like I couldn't live with myself. I mean, I, I it was it was really awful because if you're if you're doing that, you have to lie about where you're going and where you are. And I remember just, ugh, I felt like I had this just ick factor all over me. And I put myself into Landmark Education. Mm. My husband and I got separated, and then I put myself into Landmark, and I started doing the work, doing the hard work, looking at why am I doing the things that I despised and, you know, starting to come to terms with I'm looking for love in all the wrong ways and all the wrong places. And it was intense. I mean, I did intense landmark landmark work for seven years. For those who don't know Landmark, can you explain what Landmark is? Yeah, Landmark is a self-development program started out way back in the day called EST, founded by a guy named Werner Earhart. And it's really... It's like an opportunity to step outside of yourself, your life, your beliefs, and look at all of these things objectively and start to really identify what, what am I doing that's serving me and what am I doing that's sabotaging me? You know, this is my description of it. Somebody else might have a completely different description of it. And, you know, the, the first event that I went to, you go to some introductions, it's called Introduction to the Forum, and some cli- how I found it was that I had this group of clients who were, I was still cutting hair at that time, really great. I loved when they came in. They were just like straight talkers, and the energy was great, and everything was great. And I said to one of them, one time, you know, when you, when you have a hair salon or you cut hair, uh, you get a lot of referrals from friends if, if they like your work. So I had this big referral group. And I said to one of them, there's something different about your group of friends. I don't know what it is, but I really feel it. Every time one of you are coming in here, I know we're having awesome conversations. And she said, oh, we've, we've all done Landmark. And I said, what's Landmark? I've never heard of that. And she said, well, it used to be Est. And I'm like, I remember reading about Est. How intriguing. And she said, well, let me take you to an introduction. So I went to an introduction with a friend who, unbeknownst to me, the friend was really triggered, but she was covering this up. And the friend was like, well, I have to leave. I I can't stay after whatever, pick her brother up or something. We have to leave. And we were in her car. So I left. I called my friend the next day and I said, hey, I really like that. I want to go to another introduction. Could I go with you? I want to Uh enroll in this. And then I'm there and, you know, it, it was really interesting what they were talking about was absolutely resonating with me. You know, I want, I feel like happiness is for somebody else, but not for me. I feel like personal success is for somebody else, but not for me. I want to understand why. I felt like if life is potentially 100%, why am I feeling like I'm living at 60 or 65? I want to fill in that gap. And I think that this is the program to do it. And it was intense. The first, the first weekend I went there, it was I started seeing things as other people would stand up and share. And there's, you know, forum leaders who lead them through discussions. I started seeing things about myself. And there was this revelation that I had that 
How did you get attention and love in my family? And I could suddenly see everything. You know, they call this a breakthrough. I could see so clearly how I was the one setting my life up to attract people into my life who would hurt me, who would leave me, who would take advantage of me, who would steal out of my business. I had it all around me, and I could see that all of that was my need to attract from my wound, believing if I could prove myself to each and every one of these people, that then everything would be okay, because they'd see that I was worthy of not being stolen from, not being cheated on, not being hurt. Yeah, I mean, the last thing else I'll say, I mean, the I'm not enough syndrome that we face is probably top three major issues that humans go through. And it's a, and it's a huge problem, especially these days, where we have so much more to compare ourselves to than when you and I were growing up. You have Instagram and the influencers and folks on LinkedIn showcasing on how quickly they grew their business and went IPO or sold it. And it's very difficult for the 99% to see themselves in a, in a bright light because if you do compare yourself to others, there's no, there's no way but down. <laughs> there's, no, there's no opportunity <laughs> but down with, with, that, with that type of mindset. It's a slippery slope. It really is. I mean, you know, back in the day before we had everything going viral and live, you know, uh, you could slip and fall. And, you know, there was one period in my life before my first marriage, I got into an abusive relationship, very abusive relationship. And I just, you know, nobody could take a picture of me and put it on the internet with makeup trying to cover bruises on my face. You know? And so... For many years, I thought I could hide that, right? I thought I could hide that. And it's, you know, domestic violence is so prevalent. If it's not happening in your house or the house you grew up in, it's happening in your next-door neighbor's house. It's happening in your cousin's house. It's happening in your friend's house. It's very prevalent. And, uh, you know, I, I remembered thinking I could hide that part of myself that stayed in that relationship. Like, I could never let anybody know that. You know, at that point, I, I already had a business. I didn't need to be with this person. Again, looking looking for love, thinking, if I just prove to you that I'm good enough, you'll be nice to me. You know, I think that you're so right, whether it's just human, it's human nature. You know, I've been mentoring and working with primarily entrepreneurs for many, many years at this point, and this is something that we bump up against all the time. And it just, you know, it takes a tremendous amount of trust for the person on the other side to be comfortable enough talking about this particular thing that we're saying right now. And, you know, it's it's the only way to the light is through the yeah. dark, through the dark. It, and I think a lot, of, a lot of the reasons why we numb as human beings is because we're trying to mask the fact that we're not enough. Yes. It's just easier to have a dependency on a substance, an abusive relationship, whatever it might be, whatever that that looks like for, for the individual. But it really is just masking the pain of, I think Oprah said it best, we all want to matter. Yeah. And the not enough aspect in, in our lives just means that we don't matter. And that's a big, a big concept that I think if you can help others achieve through, and I know you do, is a testament to not being victim to your past. And we'll get to that in a little bit. I do want to cover 
the cancer aspect in your life. So your dad had cancer, your brother had cancer. Tell us a little bit about that part of your life and how did that impact your adulthood? Yeah, tremendously. I mean, my first exposure to cancer was was my grandmother. I only knew one grandmother because my parents were older. They were 41 and 45 when they had me. You know, in 1961, that was really old to be having a child. And my grandmother had colon cancer and came to live with us. And I just remember cancer was this, like, bad word. And then a couple years later, my brother was diagnosed with leukemia. And we lived through that. And at that point, you know, I was 14. We had moved up to, uh, on a lake in Pennsylvania. It was my, my grandmother's house. And my dad wanted to move there. And it was very rural. There was no cancer care center. There was, you know, the closest hospital was 40 minutes away. And my brother was older than me. He was a state trooper at that time. He was married with two little children. And the only way he could get to the cancer care treatment was the state troopers putting him in the helicopter and flying him there. And for the 10 and a half months that he lived, we were shipped everywhere. I, I was shipped back to Pittsburgh to live with my aunt and uncle, I slept on their couch because they only lived in a one-bedroom apartment. My sister was left at home by herself with a car and a whole house with a bar in it, that that was not good. She was a teenager. You know, my brother's children were sent. We were just scattered. It was a really tough time. So my brother died in May, and it was that couple months later, it was August, and I was getting ready to, to start school. And, you know, I didn't have any school clothes. I didn't have school shoes. I didn't have any of that stuff. And I walked in my mother's bedroom in the afternoon and thinking we were going to go school shopping that day. And she was kneeling by her bed praying. Very, I grew up in a very Catholic family. There was, but for most of my early life, I actually thought I was going to join the convent. And boy, did that seem so safe to me, right? So my mother's kneeling by her bedside. She's praying and she's got the rosary in her hand. And I was so angry at her. And I said, you know, how can you be praying to God? God took your son. God took my brother. Like, how can, how can you be praying? Aren't, like, aren't you angry? I'm mad. And, and my mother stood up and wrapped her arms around me, and she said, well, we're, we're not supposed to understand the plan. We're supposed to pray for the faith to get through it. Uh, and that was such a powerful message that wow. really landed so beautifully, and I, I rely on that so much. But, you know, so we hugged for a couple of minutes, and I let that sink into myself. And, and I, th- I was like, okay, God, if you're here, what do I tell my mother? How do I help my mother? And I did not know this for many, many years. That, you know, so I put my hands on her face, and I said, you lost one child, but you have three of us who still need you. I need school shoes. Can we please go shopping? <laughs> and we went school shopping. And my mother told me many, many years later, that day— and she remembered it very clearly as I did. That was the pivotal point that got her out of her depression of losing her first child. So, yeah, wow. it is big impact. Then when we found out my father had it, I remember we all thought, oh, are we all going to get cancer? Like, you know, yeah. I had to work hard to get that story out of my head. I don't want those words floating around. Yeah, of course. So it was, you know, jump ahead years years later, uh, my husband, Daryl, and I lived in a very rural community in Deep Creek, Maryland. This was in 2015, and I was on the foundation development board for the local hospital and doing a lot of work to raise awareness around health care. I was the president of the Health Planning Council and then serving for the hospital in a fundraising position. And I was slated, I was vice chair, slated to come on as board chair. 
And I knew that we were going to be moving. So I, I went to the development director and the current chair, and I said to him, it's not fair to the hospital. I know we're going to be leaving in the next two years. I don't want to come on for a short-term position. We need to start cultivating somebody now who can take over. But there is something that I would really like to do. We live in a rural area. We have a regular rate of cancer, but people in Garrett County, Maryland, die at one of the highest rates in the country and the highest rate at the state because they can't get to the cancer care center 90 minutes away. They either don't have a car, they can't afford gas, they have to decide, do I buy diapers or do I buy gas? I, I can't miss work. I don't have health insurance. I don't have a babysitter. So they get the diagnosis of cancer and a year later they're dead. And I was watching people from our community die and being, you know, as the, presiding over the health planning council. When we started sharing these stats with the community, that was really, that was the pivotal point for me is we get to change the situation here. So I said to them, I'm gonna to put together a group of people. We need to get the certification of need, but I would like for my husband and I to step up and chair a committee to bring cancer care to Garrett County, Maryland. And this was like, what? You're coming to us asking us to raise money? So I called a breakfast with six friends who were influential people in the community and laid out the statistics. We had the development director there. And, and I said, our goal is to raise a half a million dollars in the next year so that we can get some grant funding and you know get this done. And one of our friends, Bill, by the end of the breakfast, we started writing out, who can we go to and what can we ask them for? 10,000, 20,000, 1,000. Who can we go to and ask for money? And by the end of the meeting, Bill said, we need to raise a million. We need to raise a million. To make this happen, we need to raise a million. So the next morning, I made an appointment with the CEO who was new at the hospital, and I sat down. I said, I have a group of people who are going to raise a million dollars to bring cancer care here. He started to cry. He said, I'm, oh, I've already started talking, but we have to have a local contingency of, you know, we have to have local development here. So six months later, this, I, I got chills talking about this. In nine months, we raised $1.9 million. Nine months in a small wow. rural community. I mean, I would walk into the hospital lobby and, and the Viva volunteers, the, the, the women, who, you know, with little blue hair, sweet women, would hand me checks for $25 and say, I heard you're bringing cancer care here. I lost my husband to cancer. Wow. So within six months, the cancer care center started being built. As of 18 months after it was built, we had treated over 2,000 lives. As of last year, when I got the statistics, it's the, the center is now seven years old. As of last year, over 2,000 lives were saved. Wow. It changed the markers in the county by Garrett County being able to have people who it would take you seven minutes to get to the cancer care center. Somebody could give them a ride versus 90 minutes where nobody could give them a ride. Yeah, there's... That's amazing. It really is amazing. And, and so many lives are probably saved as, as a result of your decision to move forward. Now, with my first company, one of my so-called mentors looked at my business plan, threw it on the table and said, no one's going to read your business plan. What you need is a feasibility study mm -hmm. to prove out that this is a model that's going to work out. Did you face that or did you just dive in headfirst into the project? 
I just dove in. The feasibility <laughs> report was our friends are getting diagnosed with cancer and they're dying because there's no place here to go. There's definitely a need. There is a need. And there and there was a need. There really was a need. So, you know, I had all I, I had statistics. That's what I had. I had a CEO of the hospital, Mark Bucot, who was there and absolutely, absolutely was on board with let's raise the whole community by doing things like this here. And it was it was the first big project under him being CEO. But our first event, I brought four of the couples together. I was very active. We lived on a lake. I was very active in the sailing community there. I, you know, rented this the clubhouse out for the night and invited about a hundred people. And even like it was a Sunday night, that morning I turned around to the people who were behind me in church and I said, hey, I knew this couple, but, you know, if you guys aren't doing anything tonight, we're doing a fundraiser to bring a cancer care center to, to the hospital. You know, please come. You know, I told them where it was. They showed up. They wrote a $100,000 check that night. Wow. Like, and it was just, you know, we say, are we, how are we divinely guided by our higher purpose, whatever or whomever the higher purpose is? You know, what inspired me to turn around and invite them? I have no idea. But when, so when the party started... You know, I had the the servers there, and we were serving food and wine, and and I said to the servers, "Keep everybody's wine glass really full. Keep everybody's wine glass really full." This was my strategy. Get them really <laughs> but, happy. <laughs> that's so funny, but but I mean, it's still a business. Did you run that? operation or did somebody else run it for you? There's a whole hospital team in place. I, what I ran was the fundraising component of it. I worked hand in hand with the, the CEO of the hospital, the development director, and then the the cancer care nurse that we brought in made her in charge of the center until we started bringing in doctors and a lot of telehealth because it was a rural area. So you could go down to Johns Hopkins, get your protocol, and then your doctor would come on with a local doctor and they would manage it. So I was involved in in that part of the process, but never running the actual center. I think you need but to be- But it's still a business. So a lot of these folks you mentioned didn't have insurance or didn't have the means. How did How do you make it work? In the state of Maryland, there's the Affordable Care Act was, all, was in place already. Uh-huh. In the state of Maryland, there's a tremendous amount of money that, you know, that's where we were living. Now I live in the state of Georgia. I was uh-huh. very plugged into that kind of information just because of my position with the years with the Health Planning Council. So I knew that there was a lot of money around. Every state has money to help people nice. get support. And it's just making that known, making it available. So you've been you've been counseling and and mentoring entrepreneurs and and back then a friend of mine once told me the more hands you shake the more money you make <laughs> and it got me thinking about partnerships what are your thoughts about partnerships not in not only in the way that you have to probably enact them to raise funds but but also for entrepreneurs how does that play into their success or your success? 
Yeah, in, I'll speak briefly to the to the personal side of partnerships. What we did with the fundraising, and you know, whenever we're trying to do anything to lift our communities or you know, lift lift areas that need lifted, one person can't do it alone. One person can be inspirational. One person can coordinate the thing, but it takes a whole team of people. And uh, in years, with the fortunately been blessed to have a lot of experience on with board governance. Everybody is good at something, and the person in charge isn't good at everything. The person in charge is good at recognizing what the people are good at and really allowing people to live into the possibility and give their best in all circumstances. I believe that's what the leader of of that is like. And in partnerships, just like, you know, if we think of it, you know, the birds fly in the V formation, there's somebody carrying the front of that formation and then somebody else they they fall back and somebody else steps up and I think that's the way it is in business I've had one partnership full-on partnership again it's all linking back to my story linking here you big important good-looking guy who makes me feel so loved let me bring you into my business and without one penny let me give you half of my stock and you know it was a marketing person and he marketed himself, and I did learn a lesson about marketing then. Good marketing people and firms, the number one thing they're best at is marketing themselves, right? He was very good at marketing himself, and he somehow could see what I needed, and what I needed was to feel loved and to feel special. And then once I opened up my business doors and my bank account and said, hey, come on in, literally the first day, it was like, Oh my God, this, who is this person? I, this isn't the person who I knew yesterday. This person is absolutely controlling and mean. And this is not how I've ever run a business. This is not how I've ever done it. And it was, it was, and then I, you know, again, the masks that we wear, I have to prove it somehow to the community that I did not make a mistake by bringing this person into my business. That I Which business was this? This was a spa company that went on to be regionally notable with multiple locations. And he was... The day spa or... The day spa. This was the day spa that I opened in 86. I sold, the grew that business, sold that business, started another business in 1997. Mm-hmm. And I was really afraid, you know, this business is, this is going to be big. This is bigger than what I've done to date. And I got scared that I didn't know how to do it myself. And here, you know, I've, I've got this guy who's very interested in me, who comes from a beauty background, who is worldly, worldly, you know, spoke seven languages or maybe more. And, and I said to him, could you come in and help me get this thing launched? And then he wasn't a resident of the United States, so it was difficult to pay him. So then he said, well, I'll work with you in exchange for stock in the company. And, you know, when it's profitable, we'll come up with something that's fair and equitable. And I believed that. And we went to a law firm and we set it up as a C corporation. And immediately it was it was awful. And I had purchased a commercial building to put this business in. And this is this sums a lot of it up. We were in a, I was always the financial guarantor for everything. I, you know, every advertising contract we were in with our vendors, it was always my name because he didn't have, he was not a U.S. citizen. And it was 
a really busy time. I'm on the phone, I'm at the desk, and I'm answering like three and four lines at a time, putting people on hold. We're running a big promotion. And he comes up to me with a uh, clipboard and says, I need your signature on this. And I, I said, it's an advertising contract. Wait until the end of the day. And he said, no, it's going to print tomorrow. They need you to sign on this. So I see the front page, but I'm not like I'm not signing on the front page. I'm signing a page that's behind, and I'm on the phone. So I blindly sign my name. And fortunately for me, uh, I used to read the papers. So every Sunday, I read four papers in the morning. I read two local papers, the Washington Post and the New York Times. And that was my Sunday was like reading the paper. And I'm reading the local paper, and I see that I have transferred the deed of the building into a partnership with my name and his name. And I'm reading this in the paper going, what am I reading? I don't understand this. So I called the lawyer. I called him. He's not answering the phone. Called the lawyer, left a voicemail, and said, can you please call me first thing in the morning? And the lawyer called me back and said, you signed the paperwork to transfer half of the ownership of the building into his name. I said, I I did not. And it was, that's how ugly it was. That's how, that's how ugly it was. It, it took me a couple years and a lot of money to get this guy out of my business. And for 10 years, we fielded nightmarish stories of how he positioned me to be his assistant in the community. I was his secretary. It was his company. Oh, it was fascinating. And I, yeah, I missed it. I missed it because I wanted to be loved. So what happened? Did you get back the building? I got back the building. I had to buy him out. I had to buy him out. And the day that the appraiser came into the building, I said, I know I'm not supposed to be telling you this, but I need to tell you this story, why I'm buying this building out. Here's what happened. And the appraiser had had a negative interaction, had called the business like several months before, and he answered the phone, had a negative interaction. So she she knew what I was dealing with. I said, I have to buy him out of a building that he's not paid one penny for. I just need you wow. to know that. And the building did appraise for a really low amount, but I had to buy him out. I had to buy him out of stock. It was, it was, int- and the day that we're there, I had bought a BMW in the name of the business that was my, my car. The day that we're there signing the paperwork, you know, he wasn't from Pittsburgh. Everything is done except for his final f- signature. And we're in the lawyer's office and there's like six or seven of us there. And I've got an advisor with me and, and he, holds the pen up and he says, ah, but wait, if I sign this, I don't have a way to get back to Ohio. He was from California, but we were in the process of opening another business in Ohio, which I had pulled out of, and it's a whole story for another day, but I don't have a way to get back to Ohio. I need the BMW in my name right now, and I lost it, Yuval. I stood up and every profane word I knew came out of my mouth. And I'm the only female with six men in a room. And my my lawyer got me and took me back into his office. And he said, what's the value of the car? $28,000, maybe $30,000 at this point. It's, It's a used BMW. Give him the car. Get his signature. Give him the car. Get him out of here. I'll drive you home. Go buy another car tomorrow. And it took me, you know, maybe 15 minutes to be able to wrap my head around that. Wow. And then it was done. And I got to start over. And with, within 14 months, I doubled the revenue in the company and opened another location and never looked back. You've been through some hard stuff. And I, I always feel like 
the feedback, the criticisms, the pain that one goes through in life contributes to their growth. If looked at in the correct light, mm -hmm. how did you do it? How did you not just give up, numb? There's so many things you could have done that would have spiraled you downward. What are some pearls of wisdom or some advice to those who are going through a difficult time? Now it's actually a pretty bad time for businesses. Yeah. And I'm yeah. sure entrepreneurs are, are struggling in, in many ways. What are some wisdoms that you can provide just that will allow them to look forward to a better life than they are currently facing? I think, and this, this occurred to me during this time with, with the buying out the partnership. And that was in the, you know, that was 20, 21, 22 years ago. At that point, you know, I had already been through a lot up until that point. But at that time, it became very clear, how have I gotten through horrible, shitty situations in my life before? Because here I am. I'm not an addict. I've never been an addict. I chose to, well, I shouldn't say that. My addiction was work, right? I chose not to rely on drugs or alcohol. I, I just, it, it, it's not that I don't enjoy, you know, I'm a kid of the 70s, so I just didn't use that as a crutch in any means. I would, when I felt stressed, my solution was always go to work, produce a result, make money, make things better, and work your way out of this. Working my way out of it was my strategy. So I think the fact of that, I also, during that time, because that was really one of the hardest times, and I had to really look back and say, what did I learn over each one of these circumstances? You know, leaving the abusive relationship. I actually had to get on a plane and fly to another state uh, to stay with somebody else to end that. And it was, it's tough to leave an, abuse, uh, an abusive relationship. If I don't learn something from this, I am a jerk. If I don't learn something from the pain that I have just gone through, I am a jerk. What is my lesson? What is the lesson I've learned about myself, about how, how I be, my ways of being going forward? So I think that was it, always looking for what did I learn? And I think one of the biggest things that really hit me during this partnership separation was this is temporary. Every one of these situations that I looked back and could see, and I think this is so important for entrepreneurs to remember because we feel like, oh my God, the walls are caving in and we invest 100% of our energy and our stress and our anxiety. And we believe that this is how it is. When we take that breath and stop and pause and say, this is a temporary situation, in two weeks, I'm going to be dealing with a different set of circumstances. In two months, it's going to be a different set of circumstances. Looking back at, you know, then my mother went on to have a stroke three weeks after I opened this big business with the partners that was going crazy. And, I, and she had no money left. And now we learned this. And I'm financially responsible. I'm a single mother at this point with two little sons and a mother in a nursing home that's a private self-care because she didn't qualify for, you know, funding for that. And I've got all of this financial stuff on me. And I just kept thinking, this is temporary. I just have to figure out how to make enough money. You know, God give me the strength to, and the intelligence to know how to make enough money to get through this because my mother will either recover or she will die. And this situation today is not going to be my situation in six months. My mother will either be dead or I will have enough money to pay for her or she will be on a road to recovery. She did go on to live for four and a half years. And in those four and a half years, knowing that I was responsible for 
I felt responsible for her life. Uh, uh-huh. My brother and sister never stepped up with one penny to, to help support this. It made me be a better business person because I had a higher purpose, and that higher purpose is I've got to pay my mother's nursing home bill every month. You know, I have wow. to figure this out. And, you know, really how I grew the business, and this was all happening at the same time, the day that I came back and realized I am now responsible for a big monthly payment for my mother, and I have a mortgage payment, and I have a car payment, and I have a commercial building payment, and I have a payroll that's due and every other Friday, you know? Yeah, it's like, I'm, it's all on me. It's all on me. How do I grow this business? I put myself in a business growth program called the Strategic Coach, which was excellent. And I started really trusting my ability to lead. I don't need a partner. I don't need, I, I need an advisory board that I can go to, but I need to trust myself in my own ability to lead. I'm now like, you know, this is like, like now business number six and, and we're, you know, doing seven figures a year. I, I can trust myself. It's time for me to trust myself. That was a big that was a big one. And if I trust myself, that means I have to trust other people to do the things that I want done in this business. And I can't be doing every single thing in this business. So let me start really putting systems in place that other that I can train other people on, that other people can do so I don't have to be here. By God, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, this business has to be able to run because I have, you know, 35 employees and I have children who what happens? Does the business just, just close? What do I do? And, and I started running the business as if I would never be there. I was still the visionary. I was still in charge. But I started putting other people in place, looking at really their skills and having strong communication. What do you think you're best at doing? And what do you see as possible for you to create in this business? And then acknowledging them by giving them responsibility and, and that was huge in my ability to scale a, a company. How did you transition to running a business as a founder to then consulting, mentoring, speaking? How did that happen? In the 90s, I was elected as the international president of an organization in, in the beauty industry. I was 35 years old, first female, youngest person ever. Again, I didn't know what I was doing. I was so scared. I was like, oh my God, somebody's going to find out. I don't really know how to do this. But all I can do is show up and find out what do people want. So I would show up with a clipboard and ask questions, and we would get stuff done. We would just get stuff done, and it was at a global level. So that was that was really pretty big. During that time, I also started an importing and distribution company where I was importing products from Italy and selling them in the beauty industry through this organization. And so the company, Northeast Distribution Company, was my company, but I was using the membership and it was set up to be this way, and they were getting a percentage of the profit because I was serving their membership, but I was also having access to their membership. So I was traveling around the country selling products, opening markets, and I wanted to do a value add because every you know this was when all the big product Aveda, Paul Mitchell, Sebastian, all those Rusk, those companies were big and growing at the time. And they were just starting to transition out of not only being sold in licensed hair salons, but being sold in retail stores. So as a value add, I decided one of the biggest issues that I've had to overcome, and I know every salon owner, spa owner has to overcome, is time management. Let me put together a workshop on time management and life balance for the beauty industry. And if I'm going into a city to open a market, I will offer a free seminar on time management and life balance. 
And that was in 1995. And there was one interaction. It's it's a pretty special event. But but a guy came up to me afterwards and said, I never knew. I shared the story of my father. I never knew that I could reinvent my story about my father. And he was crying. And, you know, I'm, I'm a black gay man in the beauty industry. My father's never loved me. He's never accepted me for who I am. Thank you for letting me know. It doesn't have to live in my head that way. And I remember, like, flying home from that trip and thinking, this is more of what I want to do. So I found myself being asked to mentor young people. And then I had a staff. You know, the beauty industry, service industry in general, are typically not comfortable selling. And you cannot have a profitable business if your staff is not selling, up, upselling services, upselling products. And I started realizing there were serious money mindset issues with the staff. And as I had to overcome mine, I got to help them identify and overcome theirs. And I really loved that part of it. I really, really loved that part of it. So I was doing this informally. One of the people that I mentored for a brief time, she went on to Shark Tank. And, you know, I saw my staff blossoming, and, and it was really great. In 2018, I wrote my first book, Streamlined Success. And when the book hit number one on the bestseller list, I had been being called in as a keynote speaker for business growth conferences, women's conferences for many, many, many years. And I loved that part of it. I was doing that while I was running the business. But after the launch of the first book, so anybody who's listening who thinks you want to write a book, I encourage you to do that. And I encourage you to get all of the support you need to get that book to number one on the bestseller list because it really does make a difference. I was contacted by a couple organizations to come do workshops on life balance and time management, and people started contacting me. And, and I was just getting on Instagram at that time, and somebody from Instagram contacted me. And I had a coach, Jeff Faldolin, fabulous coach, and he said to me, why, why don't you just start formally a coaching practice, start a coaching practice? And initially, I was resistant to that idea. Like, and he said, what are you going to do when you sell your company? You're over the spa industry. You know, you're over that. I can see that all of your excitement, all of your passion comes from helping people produce results. Why don't you just do that? And I really started thinking about that. So I started the consulting company. At that point, I didn't have to work a whole lot in my business. I could literally spend 15 or 20 focused minutes a day with my team and the results were being produced. There were such strong systems in place that I didn't have to be there. And if entrepreneurs are bored, they get themselves in trouble. So this was the ideal timing for this. I started Streamline, uh, Streamline Success Consulting. It's been fabulous. So what I mostly do, I run a couple of groups. I run a money mindset group. I run a time program called The Time Class that's really life balance. I've written two more books, Conflict Revelation, just a couple months ago, launched Build a Million Dollar Beauty Business. That's my gift to the beauty industry. It's a 40-year diary of how to build a profitable business. And, and I work one-on-one -on -one with clients who are either in, have the idea of what the business should be or, or are in early startup mode to scale to seven figures and beyond and often do it in less than 12 months. And there are two components to that. One is the mindset piece and one is implementing systems, strong systems in a business that allow you to scale and, and be profitable, be, be successful. So I feel very blessed, very fortunate to love what I do every day and to be in a position where I have time to give back to the things that I'm passionate about. I can vouch for that because someone who I truly respect as a business 
owner referred me to you, mm -hmm. and that's how we met. And I thank her for that because the conversation was incredible, vulnerable, beautiful, heartwarming, everything that I thought it would be. Thank you, Yuval. Thank you. So I'd like to close out my interviews with the following question. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your current mm. success? I had to stop being a victim. I had to stop being a pleaser. I had to stop being somebody who only felt worthy if I was proving myself, who only felt loved if I was making your life better than you were willing to make your life yourself. And that would in turn leave me feeling like a victim. See, I loved them so much. I gave them so much and they hurt me. They left me, they lied to me, they stole from me, they cheated on me. All victim, all victim, all over that. I, I got to stop being that person. I had to stop being that person to survive. And transitioning into giving from my heart, not giving from my head. Head is transactional. Mm. Head is transactional. Giving from my heart. If I'm going to give, it's because I want no love in return. Making my contribution bigger than my reward. That was a big, a big shift for me that allows me to wake up in a state of gratitude every day of my life, grateful for, for everything, everything that's been there, this, the oddly wrapped gifts, the, the most painful points. I look mm. back, it's where I've learned the most. I also got to be a person who would be in service where I felt my, my skills were needed, not, not from that place of lack, but from that place of what, what can I do for you and expect nothing in return. And that was very different than what can I do for you so that you love me, so that you work for me. Yeah. Wow. So many wisdom nuggets. <laughs> if I was listening, I'd be like, how do I get in touch? So <laughs> tell all the seven headers uh, what you're currently up to and how they can connect with you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. My email is Dorothy, D-O-R-O-T-H-Y, Dorothy at Streamline Success. You can find me on Instagram under Streamline Success, on Facebook, Streamline Success, or my, my personal profile, Dorothy Andreas. And, and I've been active for the past year and a half over on Clubhouse, and I'm liking that. I'm liking that. I'm liking Clubhouse. I, you know, I do a little bit of stuff on LinkedIn, but not too much. I'm really enjoying the Clubhouse space because people who I speak in a room every day, and then I run my own room called Time ROI once a week. That's a room for entrepreneurs to show up and ask questions. And I really like that because it's like open forum. You can ask any question at any phase of development, whether it's personal or professional. Ask it. If I can't answer it, somebody else on the stage can, and I, I'm really liking that. Wow, I love that. Clubhouse, for those who don't know, became very famous during the pandemic and kind of died down a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the hoopla uh, faded, but I'm glad that it's helping you spread your message. Frank Sinatra once said, the best revenge is massive success. And you've been hurt a lot and, and a lot of folks yeah. didn't believe in you. I would venture to say that it's more than just success. I think the best revenge is when you have or you can provide massive success to others mm -hmm. and to yeah. many others. And that's when true success 
happens in one's life. Financial freedom and accolades and trophies are not a, the mark of a successful person, despite what Instagram will tell you. Yeah. Help a million people, help a billion people achieve their dreams. And that's what I call success. And that's your journey, my friend. And you should be very proud of yourself and you are enough. I don't have to tell you that, you know that, but everything that you went through is the culmination of what you needed to go through to help so many others. And I think that's a blessing. Yuval, thank you so much. You know, I think there's there's one more thing that I think is is important for anybody who's got a relationship that isn't the way that they want it to be with a parent or a sibling. You know, my sister and I had to heal this relationship. And she asked me a question one day. This is 15, 18 years ago. Why are you always so angry with me? And I started telling her. And after the day I made the decision to stop behaving in the way that got me the result that I didn't like, my relationship with her got way better. She didn't change. She is who she is. It just doesn't mean anything to me. It used to mean something to me that she was the way she was. I made it personal for me. But with my father, and I think here's the more important story, after doing the work on myself and really seeing it, you know, I have nothing but love and empathy in my heart for my father. He loved me the way that he mm -hmm. could, and it's what he learned from his father. And anything I didn't get from him has made me stronger, has made me learn how to love those missing parts of myself that I thought I had to find externally, that I thought, if somebody who represents my father loves me, then I'm okay. When I learned how to love myself from the inside out, truly accepting every part of myself, even the parts I hated, even, you know, the cellulite, even the gray hairs, even all of that, just accepting it, my life changed drastically. So thank you, Yuval. This has been absolutely a wonderful conversation with you. Absolutely. And then on that note, I think we can safely and honestly say, Dorothy, thank you for gracing us on The Seven Hats. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dorothy. Let's end today with the show segment that I refer to as, What Can We Hang Our Hat On? And here is my takeaway. Dorothy's story is a powerful testament to the resilience of the human spirit and the transformative power of self-awareness. Her journey, marked by overcoming adversity, reshaping personal narratives, and eventually guiding others, highlights a profound truth. Our greatest struggles often lead to the most significant growth. From childhood, shadowed by feelings of neglect to become a beacon of hope and guidance for many, Dorothy's life underscores the importance of confronting our past, embracing our present, and forging our future with deliberate choices. Echoing the insights of Eckhart Tolle, Dorothy's story emphasizes living in the now, unburdened by past traumas and future uncertainties. She reminds us that while our past shapes us, it does not define us. Her embrace of self-development through programs like Landmark illustrates that understanding ourselves is crucial to breaking free from our self-imposed limitations. Dorothy's experience with cancer in her family and her monumental effort in bringing cancer care to her community shows us that personal challenges can fuel our passion for making a difference. She turned her pain into purpose, a lesson that resonates deeply with the notion that it's our decisions not our conditions that shape our destiny. This journey of transformation is not isolated. 
Just as Dorothy found strength in her self-discovery and helping others, we too must recognize the power of community and connection. Our growth is amplified by the support and encouragement of those around us, those who believe in us, when we doubt ourselves. In essence, Dorothy's life journey teaches us about the resilience in each of us, the importance of self-reflection, and the transformative impact of serving others. That's why hat number six, the philanthropist, is one of the hats that I'm striving so much to do better at. Dorothy's story is a reminder that in the pursuit of our true potential, we must balance self-compassion with accountability and embrace the lessons from our past to illuminate our path forward. I want to thank Dorothy once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from her wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you received from it so that we can attract even more high-quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selick, and I tip my hat to you.